Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, awakening, unfindability, neuroscience, every William Gibson novel, Vajrayana Buddhism, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode, I'm happy to be speaking with meditation teacher, author, and visionary leader, Spring Washam. Spring Washam is a meditation teacher, author, and visionary leader based in California and Peru. She's the author of the book, A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. Spring is a pioneer in bringing mindfulness-based healing practices to diverse communities and is one of the founders and core teachers at the East Bay Meditation Center, located right here in downtown Oakland, California. Spring received extensive training from Jack Cornfield, is a member of the Teachers' Council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and has practiced and studied in both the Theravada and Tibetan schools of Buddhism for the last 20 years. Spring is also a shamanic practitioner and has studied indigenous healing practices for over a decade. She is the founder of Lotus Vine Journeys, an organization that blends indigenous healing practices with Buddhist wisdom. And now, without further ado, I give you my interview with Spring Washam. Hello, Spring. Welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Hi, so happy to be with you today. For listeners, this is the second attempt at this podcast. Spring and I attempted to do this a week ago, and we had some internet difficulties. So here we are at it again, and I hope this time the internet cooperates. I'm sure it will. It deconstructed itself last week. Yeah. (laughs) It absolutely did. (laughs) Great. Well, let's just hop right in. I understand from the little bit of conversation we had before that you're on a sort of working retreat these days. Yes. And what's going on with that? Like, uh, why the working retreat and what are you doing during this time? Well, it's more of a writing retreat. So, you know, I found this amazing treehouse in Woodacre right next to Spirit Rock Meditation Center where I often, you know, well, used to lead retreats in the old days. Um, you <laughs> Back know, when there were retreats. Yeah, we're referring to the, in those days, those times when we were allowed. So yeah, I rented this tree house and then I ended up getting this amazing opportunity to write a book about Harriet Tubman. So that is the world in which I'm immersed in. It's kind of like the Dharma and the wisdom of Harriet Tubman. Now, this is really fascinating. So I think for myself and probably for most people, we know who Harriet Tubman is. We've heard of what she did, but we wouldn't necessarily put her together in the same sentence as Dharma, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, Spring, what's the connection for you? How do Harriet Tubman and Dharma go together? Well, I see them intersecting in a couple of very profound ways. The first, I think, is that, you know, when we are practicing Buddha Dharma, everything is about liberation, right? The path of liberation, the path to freedom, you know, finding freedom, awakening to freedom. And that's a very internal process for most people. You know, they do it on the cushion or the the imagery is of that. It's a mind, sort of a battle of the mind, you could say. 
But Harriet, in some ways, she reflects the outer journey of someone who actually had to fight for freedom, for her own freedom, from, you know, the laws of the land. And so for me, her external journey to abolishing slavery and, you know, being born a woman and enslaved and beaten down and then dying on her own property, having accomplished this mission, there's this archetypal tale, you know, and she was referred to as Moses, which as we know in the Bible, Moses is this prophetic character who came to liberate, you know, the Israelites from slavery. And so the, the story of Harriet Tubman is one of somebody who is seeking freedom. And that is exactly, you know, what we're doing in the Buddhist tradition is where it's inward, but we're trying to free ourselves from greed, hatred, and delusion. It's so interesting, of course, because when we refer to some of the goals of Buddhism in English, we tend to use words like enlightenment or awakening. But of course, in the original languages, it is. It's freedom or liberation is mm. usually the word that is being used there, like moksha or mukti or something like that. So that's very interesting that you've made that connection. Mm. And have you found that there's any verbal teaching from Harriet Tubman that actually really is easy to work with in a meditation context? Or is it more sort of looking at her life and drawing conclusions from there? Well, I think we can look at one of the things that, you know, depending on what tradition you are, rather you're, you know, a Hinayana, Vajrayana, Mahayana, or if you don't even subscribe to that. But for a large majority of the Buddhist practitioners around the world, the Mahayana teachings on the Bodhisattva archetype are profound. Yeah. And for me, as a very young person, when I got into the Dharma, it was that. It was through, although I practiced in Theravada tradition, insight tradition, my heart was really, really invested in that teaching of the Bodhisattva way of life. And I remember going all over the world. I used to follow the Dalai Lama around, you know, and listen <laughs> to the Heart Sutra. I didn't even know what they were talking about. I would just sit in the audience going, what, what, what does that mean? What did he say? And you know, most people would say, oh, he just says have a good heart, you know, don't worry too much. <laughs> but I remember trying to understand, you know, what is the essence of the Bodhisattva way of life? And I remember going to this teaching in New York and he gave a teaching on Shanti Deva's practices of the Bodhisattva based on the book. And that was a time where I actually took the Bodhisattva vow. And when I'm reading about Harriet Tubman's life, when I'm reading about her willingness to be a conductor and rescue people, you know, 10 years of her life, she would go back into the South and bring people to the North. Mm. I mean, it's heroic beyond, you know, anything that a lot of people could, you know, there's helping and then there's helping. And there's, you know, uh, yeah, a difference. risking your life at <laughs> yes. every moment. Yeah. Yes, you know, there's compassion and there's maha compassion. And maha <laughs> compassion means you put action behind your heart, right? You're not just going to sit on the sidelines. You're actually going to be willing to engage. So I think as I write, those are the pieces that are really pulling me in the story that I want to tell in this modern context. Because, you know, the question of the hour is, why does it matter now? 
Why are these ancestors back now? Why is she going to be put on the $20 bill now? Why is there so much interest now? And so it feels like there's important things to share. So I hope to be able to transmit my connection, my heart, and what I think is a profound message that might have been overlooked because of who she was and the body she was born into, basically. And what do you think it is particularly about this moment that is bringing forward, as you say, the energy of these particular ancestors or of Harriet Tubman specifically? Yeah. And, you know, I write a lot about this. It's kind of a core point in my book. You know, the title is The Spirit of Harriet Tubman Awakening from the Underground. I think in a lot of ways, we're back in time right now. We are talking about Confederate soldiers and statues. You see Confederate flags. We are arguing people. You hear civil war, civil war, the blue states, the red states. These are not a lot on one level has changed. These were the battles that Harriet had, the slave states versus the non-slavery states fought it out, the North and the South, you know? And so there's a strange kind of, as we know how karma is in samsara, it's circular. We go back again and again, and there's something that although slavery was abolished, the mindset that went with it has not been. And so I think these ancestors are back. You know, you see a lot of it now, like Frederick Douglass everywhere and all kinds of documentaries. And there's a huge wave of interest in the history, African-American history, and how that relates to American history. <laughs> it's deeply intertwined, you know. <laughs> Inseparably forever entwined, yes. for sure. Yes. And so can you give us a feel for how, as meditation practitioners, we can take a lesson from Harriet Tubman? Well, I think there's an important thing, you know, for meditation, having been in meditation communities for so long and been involved in spirit rock communities. And, you know, we started our center in Oakland, the East Bay Meditation Center. And one of the things that I think is a miss, where we miss the mark, is that we believe that the inner and outer are very separate. Right? We believe like, I'm going to sit in my own world on my own cushion and I'm going to block out everything else and I'm going to see it as not connected. I'm going to see this as this and this as that. And I guess on one level, you know, it's kind of like ultimate reality and relative reality, you know, the karmic level and the ultimate level have to be understood simultaneously. You know, it's the two great truths, you know, that have talked about yeah. that. And so what I find is that a lot of practitioners, they tend to rest in one of the truths or the other. They're either very pulled towards just the karmic view, conventional view, and relative reality, the reality of form. You know, and then there's other people who are way too far into ultimate reality. You know, it's like none of this matters, it's all impermanent. You know, it's empty. Yes, empty, but yet it has tremendous impact, you know? And so I think for practitioners, as we grow and move into meeting, you know, the outer world and it has impact on the inner world, how could it not, you know? We start to learn how to balance the outer confusion of greed, hatred, and delusion and see it connected to the inner battle of greed, hatred, and delusion. I think this point you're making about people kind of leaning towards one side of this or the other is so important and really true. 
What I see quite a bit of is a sort of, I don't know, I guess I'll put a loaded word in here and just say kind of a privileged retreat into I'm going to hang out in my peace bubble of meditation Mm -hmm. and sort of look at it as not getting my hands dirty to be political or to go out into the marketplace and help people or into the streets and do something useful for somebody somewhere. And in fact, there can be a little bit of a, or a lot actually, of an almost disdain for Mm. people who are, let's say, furious about various political injustices and ready to do something about it, especially in the Buddhist community, there can be a kind of a, oh, you know, you're so deluded. You're allowing yourself to be so upset about this worldly stuff. Mm. And to me, this is really problematic. It's so important to remember that we have to actually take action in the world, help people, you know, think about that bodhisattva vow. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. You know, it's something I've seen for years and years. And also a way that sometimes this bubble actually it creates a block to spiritual growth, actually, because the bubble becomes just filled with aversion for everything that's not, you know, my little world that I've created where suffering is on the other side of it. I think it can be very, very delusional and we can crave just pleasant experiences and just beauty. It's a day of a world deluded aspect they come from that reality <laughs> and then that's what's so great about the devas is in that you know archetypally they fall right out of that right. world and then they're like ah, <laughs> my world because it has an ignorant pride in it like i'm so far removed from all of you who are in the streets getting shot and killed and with your signs getting you know tasered by police <laughs> and i'm over here in my million dollar house with my buddha statues and I'll pray for you. Okay. You know, you know, we just replicate the delusion, you know. And so those people that are living in their deva palaces, I get why you want to stay there. Yeah, it's comfortable, but that's not where liberation is. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and as a teacher, when you run into this energy or expression, how do you work with that? You know, it's really hard. And I'll tell you what, I haven't really been interested in working with it as much. You know, even teaching, you know, Spirit Rock, which people have made so many jokes about over the years, calling it the upper middle way. (laughs) You know, and like, well, my response is to work in Oakland. You know, because I feel like the message and the heart and the understanding of life where it is the the aspects of the heavenly messengers are more active they're more alive they're more real and so i don't know if i have a place in those heaven world experiences i think i'm one that will come along and try to pop the balloon you know and people don't like that they don't want the balloon pop they want to you know hear teachings that kind of make everything more beautiful, decorate our prison cells, don't pull back the curtain. (laughs) So I don't know. I'm not drawn to those types of experiences anymore. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So just to balance the scales here, what about on the other side where you find people who are allowing themselves to be so embroiled 
with what's going on that there's actually zero peace of mind happening or very little peace of mind. How do you work in that realm? Yeah, that also has its challenges because what people start doing is they start becoming the person that demonize, right? They start, you know, sinking lower and lower into hatred and violence and not responding from a place of wisdom and love. So with that group, you know, we could say, I always just try to elevate the teachings of peace, nonviolence. You know, you have to look at the long-term view here. This is not a one-stop shop. We've been doing this for eons, you know, so often you can kind of break people out of that with a lot of wisdom teachings because they have the compassion, but they don't have the wisdom. And without the balance of seeing that, you know, this is the nature of reality itself, you know, if you want to break your own heart, read history, you know, it's a long tale of missteps and delusion. And, you know, there's tales of great leaders and there's tales of tyrants. And so, you know, I try to put it in the context of this is a chapter in a great book. And what you do now, how you react is a seed you plant in the ground. It's a seed you yourself plant. We're all operating from karmic forces here. So for me, I think it's easier for me to almost reroute that energy than it is to kind of break out of the palace. <laughs> the palace is too comfortable, at least the ground. They both have their flaws. I'm not saying they're, you know, but at least with that, you know, the wisdom, because people, experience burnout from rage. That's a real phenomenon. And so to come into a meditation center, they're already open to something new. They're open to like, I'm not balanced here. I'm, I'm consumed in the fire and I get it. And so for me, that's a place that again, we just both sides, you know, we just need to find freedom in a more balanced way. Yeah, you know, if we are always engaged in the struggle, right? It can be very unsustainable without the wisdom component that you're describing, right? We can yeah, just get yeah. so embroiled in the world that we lose our own resilience that's going to allow us to work in a sustainable way over time. And so what's it like for you to help people to find this resilience in their practice? Well, you know, it's different at any moment. And to kind of just add one more thing onto our conversation, you know, the struggle, we could say, the last five years due to causes and conditions that was a huge <laughs> shift, right? So yeah. it's a time of more struggle right now, right? I mean, if you look at the previous eight years, it was a little more relaxed. I mean, there was always stuff going on, but do to certain conditions that happen, there has to be resistance. There has to be applied force in a different direction. There has to be a willingness to engage with, you know, greed and hatred and total delusion in a way. So sometimes the resiliency is in meeting it, knowing that at times, you know, if Harriet just, you know, sat there as a slave on the plantation, just meditating, it wouldn't, you know, she was like, no, I got to actually engage here. You know, so there is a moment where we have to move into action for some of us. Some of us going to be a, a lot more of a power move than others, depending on who you are and your body and your ethnicity and where you're from and what's coming toward you. 
so I think the resiliency is in, you know, where are we? What stage are we on? You know, because I definitely see this last year, especially as a time to be more active, to stand up to what we believe, to reinforce what is true. And people do that in a lot of different ways. You know, people do that in a lot of different ways. It's not like meditation doesn't have a place. It definitely has a place because, you know, when we're practicing, we're coming from our deepest wisdom. The hope is, right, that we come out of that time and we're connected to our heart. We're moving with clear vision. We're moving with wisdom and wise action. So the resiliency that I teach is that in each moment, there's a different level of action that needs to happen. A response meets the moment. Sometimes some people will be out on a protest line. Others will be in the kitchen making sandwiches for those on the protest line, right? It's like (laughs) there's so many roles, right? It's infinite. Some people will be sending emails for that action or where to pick up your sandwich. You know what I mean? It's infinite. You know, it's a machine. And when compassion and truth get rolling forward, you know, I would hope that we practice for those moments too of not just the war, but the rejoice, the freedom. <sighs> I don't know. It's hard to, we're still in the midst of something very profound. So sometimes I have a hard time finding words. I still feel like we're in the middle of a great shift. Yeah, it's interesting to see what will be happening in the next few years. Right. We're definitely in the midst of something changing pretty dramatically. I'm curious when you tune into that shift, just personally, do you have a sense of where you imagine it's going? Well, I mean, if I look at it, yeah, I do. And then, and as I'm writing about, you know, historic figures and I'm thinking about, you know, their fight for liberation, you know, what they're fighting for is equality. They're fighting for this kind of radical inclusivity that every human being matters. You know, we can start with the drumbeat of Black Lives Matter because that's where we've seen the opposite in such a huge way. But it's also the women of able-bodied people, of LGBTQ, of people born in poverty. You know, it's like there's this view of that everyone gets to partake in the system. And there's a view that's like, no, only we can. And those two views seem to be the what's battling each other. That we're all in the arms of the beloved or no you're not, we are, (laughs) you know, and these ideologies are battling it out. And it just happens to look like, you know, we see all the rhetoric, but so will love win? Will inclusivity win? Will, will it be a world where all beings can have a sense of quality and everyone who's born matters the same as anyone else who's born? Or will we perpetuate the aristocracy illusion of, you know, I don't know, but I feel like at the heart of it, that is what is on the line, that these two radical worldviews. And that seems to have been on the line and battling it out in the United States since before the United States, right? It's been here for (laughs) 400 years, this exact issue. Sometimes not so hot, you know, but Mm -hmm. right now the issue's hot again. Right. It has its waves as pieces. I look at it as pieces of the programming of the ideology being chipped away. 
you know, it's like an old ideology and, you know, we can say, you know, it has the deepest roots is this idea of the white supremacist mindset, you know, but it feels like it erupts when it's being chipped away more and more, like huge pieces fall and then there's a battle to preserve it. <laughs> and then it gets defeated. And then we go through another round. Okay, what is equality here? You know, it just feels like, you know, round and round. And, and that the United States is just so interesting because the battle here just is the archetype for the battle. It's like the mirror for the rest of the world to look at constantly. You know, it's like, wow, look what's happening there. If it could happen there, well, what's happening here in our own backyard? You know, everyone gets to look at this battle and to see themselves, you know. So it's interesting that U.S. plays a, is a powerful country just because of the number of eyes that are on it. Yeah, our family battles within our own house are broadcast to the world, so to speak. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and used as examples, right? They're imitated right. or they're ridiculed or they're adopted or they're inspiring, you know? So it's very interesting. And just to shift gears slightly, what role do you see? I know you do quite a bit of work with plant medicines like ayahuasca and so forth. I'm curious what role you see potentially that playing in this time. Well, you know, I see tremendous value in plant medicine. My sense is that in a year, maybe less, as people sort of wander out into the world, I think it'll be a mass movement. I think this place will go from very still to buzz, like the beehive just came alive, you know? And we've all been kind of held back, right? We've all been sort of, and then once things are safe, I think there's going to be just this catalyst of energy, creative energy, expressive energy, connection, art, you know, and travel. And I think that the earth, I think hopefully for a lot of us over this last year, we've had this deeper appreciation for living systems, the earth as a system. At least that's my sense is that we're slowly waking up to that health and wellness has so much to do with earth, you know, earthiness. And are we healing ourselves? What are we eating? So the plant world, I have great hope about because the process of these two, you know, and I talked about these two archetypes of the, the radical inclusivity and the egoic kind of me, 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 us, not connected. What I think about the plants is that when you take plant medicine, it reconnects you to the living system that we are. Very quickly, it's interconnected. Very quickly, when people come on my retreats in Peru, you know, we drink medicine out in the jungle and we're on the river in this beautiful maloca. I call it the mothership. <laughs> and, you know, and there's Shipibo's, my most beautiful Shipibo healer singing the songs of the plants. You know, and it's like our hearts are being rewoven. Like, oh my God, you know, and so many people say, I was one with the jungle. I was one with the star. How could I see myself as separate? And that's the great shift right there. That's it. Because yes, how could you not see yourself, you know, as connected? And so I think 
that's why I use them. You know, over the years, I've been deeply on the hot seat as a Buddhist teacher working with medicine. And I I would always come back to that, like, you know, I would sit in front of my elders and I would say, I know, I know it's controversial, but by any means necessary, we have to wake up faster. (laughs) So I'm just using this as an acceleration force. (laughs) And they could get it, you know, where... For God's sakes, we're passing all the tipping points that science is saying. We're going into the red zone. Every level you could go into. So for me, the plant medicine is a way to move consciousness quicker into this idea of seeing ourselves as connected to the earth, as connected to one another, so that we don't destroy it. Yeah, we're certainly at the extreme edge of danger here. Yes, I mean... Yeah, that's what they say when we can feel it. We are in a pandemic. This is alerting me to something on a fundamental level. There is a parasitic virus, you know, that's unleashed, you know. So it's like, wow, well, there's something even very powerful in that, thinking of that. And when you work with, you know, a meditation practitioner who comes down to Peru and drinks ayahuasca with you and, you know, has their experience. Like, how do you help them to integrate that, what they experience, that opening and that connection and whatever teachings they received and the visionary quality? How do you work with helping them to kind of fold that back into their practice and fold that back into their Buddhism in a way that makes sense for them? First of all, integration is very important. You know, it's a classic thing of when someone goes on a long retreat and they come back to their life, there's usually a really bumpy place of integration, right? They come off the mountain and they fall apart when they get in their mom's kitchen. You know, it's like, (laughs) I don't know why it is like that. It's because we are merging something so beyond (laughs) with this relative world, right? And it's sometimes there's a slam there. It's, you know, and you're laughing. I can laugh at that because I've had that experience on so many long meditation retreats (laughs) coming home and it's just being a a disaster, you know? And then you find your footing, right? It's a few months and you're like, okay, I, I got it. I got it. I'm not freaking out. I'm not, I'm not freaking out anymore. I'm in my body again, you know? And it's just like that. So it's very similar sometimes with, you know, these ayahuasca retreats and the integration, because depending on the person. Now, what's interesting for me is that my experience, and I will be writing, I'm working on another book about this after this, it was the one I was working on before Harriet derailed it, which is about the fact that when I am working with ayahuasca, and I'm doing it in a meditative way, you know, our retreats, we're meditating, we're sitting, we, you know, we take the precepts, we chant mantras, you know, a lot of that's happening, is that the insights, the dharmic insight goes so much deeper. So in some way, you're not actually pulled out of view. You're actually pushed much closer to the truth of the insight. An example, you see impermanence at a whole nother level. You see forgiveness at another level. You see interconnectedness at another level. So these things that were conceptual in your mind, you read them, you studied them, you prayed them, you hoped for them. <laughs> these liberating insights that 
set the mind free if we use insight meditation, insight into impermanence, dukkha, and no self, right? These things are being shown to you. So in one way, it's not destabilizing. It's a radical understanding of the Dharma, actually, from a completely different perspective. Oftentimes, I say to people, it was the plant medicine that made me a true Buddhist. Because everything I saw was connected to what I'd read. You know, it was like, oh, this is how this works. Oh my God, it's true, you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so somewhere the integration isn't the material. It's the truth of the Dharma that has to go deeper when you get home. The Dharma itself. It's just like leaving a retreat. We have to go back into the mundane and make sense of our dirty laundry and our messed up relationships and our bills, you know, we have to make sense of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. And so I don't know if that's how I describe it. That's so interesting. I feel like that's almost the reverse of the way people typically talk about it. And I find that really fascinating that, hey, this is not somehow taking you outside your practice or outside the Dharma or outside the view, but rather actually taking you on a much deeper journey into the Dharma and into the view and into your practice. And it's not a thing that's somehow separate, right? Right. And of course, in American Buddhist history, so many people, obviously in the 60s and 70s, started with psychedelics. I certainly started with a giant bucket of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And so many people get into their meditation practice from this route. But I think there's something interestingly different about coming at it after you've had quite a bit of meditation practice. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree with you. And also, you know, a lot of people make comments in, about plant medicine, and maybe they had their experiences kind of like in the 60s and the 70s. And I also had my own experience with psychedelics. And if I had just went off that, I never would have gone into ayahuasca because I had some bad experiences and some beautiful ones with LSD. But because I didn't understand the context of ceremony, mm -hmm. I didn't understand that I was entering into a place that actually I'm in a hospital and, you know, I need help. So a lot of people, I think, making comments about it being off base, not is because of their own experience of a psychedelic experience that was in an unsafe set and setting. Very few people that I know who have worked with the medicine and this time say it's anything, anything other than dharmic. Like that was profoundly, you know, a journey into wisdom and compassion. Yeah. I think it's so interesting how people, you know, describe ayahuasca as having very direct kind of teaching presence, mm -hmm. an entity or entity-like teaching presence, you know, mamacita or whatever, and bringing this sort of particular teaching. For example, when you feel that kind of connectivity to nature and to all beings, there's something that comes with that that's like this direct shot in the heart about the dignity of all beings, like the essential uh, nobility mm. and dignity of beings. And it's something that touched me when you were remarking about everyone who's born, do we get to you know treat them equally? And it's like, if you actually feel 
directly connected to plants and to animals and to human beings and to all sorts of other beings, you cannot help but be cracked open by the requirement to treat them all with profound dignity or respect for their nobility and dignity. And it's so fascinating that that's just like built right into the experience of, <laughs> of connecting, right? I think that there can be this way that people talk about connecting and it's like, oh yeah, I'm connected with all things. I'm one with beings. And I don't know, it has that sort of surfacey sweetness that's good, right? There's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that. But it takes a little more to crack down into the real bedrock of that, into the roots of that. And if you're connected with them and you're one with them, you know, you will see how real they are, the essential humility to your view, right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, when I started working with plants, I was doing it to treat my own trauma and to be a better teacher in Oakland. We had just opened our center. I fell apart on a three-month retreat and I experienced all this trauma that I thought was I was done, you know, mm. and that's what inspired me to work with plants. I was just trying to heal myself. Like, <laughs> I've done everything and this is still here? Are you kidding? How many more <laughs> retreats do I have to do? You know, I've, I've done months. I've been blessed by every Baba, every, you know, side out. I've swam with dolphins and, you know, been to the Bodhi tree and cried and prostrated. And, I, you know, here I am. I'm still kind of a mess on one level. And so I think one of the challenges is, is that I notice within these mainstream Dharma centers is that people aren't growing that much. That was an insight I had during my teacher training with my main teacher, Jack Cornfield, where I would follow him around, followed him around for six years, basically listening to him in interviews with people on retreat. And I just remember being shocked. I remember going but nobody's on the stages of insight. Everyone's collapsed on the side of the river and their trauma and their drama. And it was like, oh, we're not. And I would see people who had been practicing 30 years. You know, those kind of people that have a spiritual resume that just reads like, I was at this place and that place and with Ram Dass and this teacher. And then yet they still in the same pattern. There is this knowledge, but it's not deep. It's not in the bones, it's in the mind and you could feel it and you could see it. And there was no real freedom. Even when they were in their beautiful home full of Buddha statues, there was dukkha there, masses amount of dukkha. And so that also propelled me into the world of the plants because I started to see that what is it that's not going deeper? What does it take to crack the bedrock? <laughs> You know, what does it take to really feel interconnectedness? You know, I longed for that depthness. I cherished that. I was practicing for that. I wasn't practicing to feel better and to have a nice house somewhere and be a little bit happier. You know, I was really in it. I was in this, like, I want to know these teachings and get to the end, you know? You know, now I'm more patient and realize this can be, you know, I'm on the, I'm on the wheel of lifetimes. But you know what I mean? That, that was what motivated me always was to heal myself. I needed to go way deeper than I had gone before. 
that somehow sitting on the cushion in silence couldn't even heal my trauma. It did some layers of it, but I had to go deeper. And so why ayahuasca appeared right now in the Western psyche so powerfully, it's been around for thousands of years in the jungles, you know, in the Andes, even in the mountains, but now it has appeared, you know, and so I see ayahuasca as a doctor spirit. That's how I explain to everyone. I go, what is ayahuasca? I say, it's a doctor. So if you want to see a spirit doctor, then you should go to see ayahuasca. If you're ready to see a spirit doctor, then you should consider ayahuasca. Otherwise, don't. Because going to the doctor is sometimes very uncomfortable. It's sometimes surgeries. It's sometimes, you know, it's a lot. So I tell people, make sure you're ready. You know, there are other things that you could do. But I always explain to them that ayahuasca is a spirit doctor. And why is it, do you think, that in the West currently, meditation practice alone was not having the kind of impact on people that you felt it should? Well, I think that it's hitting in waves, like everything. It's new, right? One wave came in the 60s here, right? A Dharma wave. And then there'll be other waves that will hit as the teachings go deeper. But I think it landed with people who were wealthy. They were devas. And they didn't really want to go that deep into the program here. Right? They just like, Mm -hmm. give me a little bit, but not too much. (laughs) You know, I want the bliss. I want the kundalini. I want the fire. I want the love. But I don't really want to do the hard work of uprooting greed, hatred, and total delusion out of my mind. Yeah, that's more than I bargained for. Sorry. So I think it hit that tendency for people in this culture, you know, more predominantly the Western culture to kind of evade the suffering, you know, and to go to the pleasure world, to be pleasant, to push it out, which I don't think is at all how it is in Asia. You can't get out of the suffering there. There's not that many palaces. Most practitioners are living down and dirty. You know, go to Thailand, go to, you know, India, go to even in parts of Dharamsala. It's an earthier, simpler way of meeting the Dharma, meeting the truth of life, looking at suffering. Whereas I think we have that Deva cloud to contend with. It's very challenging. It keeps people very superficial in my view. And do you feel like working with the plant medicine actually does begin to crack that open, that shell of kind of the deva delusion? Mm -hmm. I do. I mean, I've worked with a lot of different kind of people on retreats, and I'm always growing and learning. You know, I've facilitated, I could say, literally hundreds of ceremonies. And it does crack the... I think it was already cracking when they came, because you don't really seek out ayahuasca unless something's cracking already. People are like, something is wrong, Spring. (laughs) I can't put my finger on it. It's just wrong. You know, the communities that I was working with primarily were a lot of affluent communities. I will be doing much more for, you know, working with different communities coming online because I'm going to focus more on healing the communities of color from the effects of racism. But typically, the amount of people who were working with the medicine were Westerners from all over And they were discovering that the Deva realm was now becoming suffering and they couldn't put their finger on it. Some were suicidal, but had everything, 
Some were, you know, had developed illnesses and depression. So it was a lot of mind disorders, right? A lot of mental pain. And so I think it's collective too. We're all pushing each other, you know, because we're all connected. We're all cells awakening. So, you know, it's the butterfly effect, right? It's like this group affects that group and that group affects that group. So I think, you know, there's a big movement right now because I think the whole programming around white supremacy has cracked people open in a whole new way, right? It's like mm -hmm. a level of programming that is like, what's going on here? <laughs> While I've been over here, I don't understand this. What happened? You know, we were just baking bread. Now we're defunding police. What's going on? You know, you know, it's kind of like it's moving fast, this waves. You know, to answer your question on a basic level, I think these plant medicines can be incredibly helpful for Westerners. However, what's unique about the medicine is that it's heavily influenced by the set and the setting. So if you're in a Buddhist context, if you're in a Dharma context, then the seeds of that will grow much deeper. So the type of community that you go into, that's why we were the first Buddhist-based community, because when I came back from living in Peru for a year, I was missed the Dharma so much. I was like, oh, this is what's missing. You know, it's the Wild West down here in the jungle. There's no ethics. There's no, you know, there's no, it's just wild. It's too wild. People are getting stuck. You know, we need the Dharma. We need the path. We need a path. And so I felt like within a Buddhist community, you know, doing all these different practices and then doing all these ceremonies that we were accelerating, you know, and being with each other in a Sangha, you know, we're all taking precepts, we're all working together, we're practicing awareness, you know, that that would set the stage for optimal results, which what we want is insight. <laughs> Yes. A reduction in pain and more insight and wisdom. <laughs> so I believe it, it definitely is happening. Now, we're sort of maybe, hopefully, starting to be able to see the end of COVID far down the road mm -hmm. from this point. We're at about the year mark right now in the States, although it was a few months earlier in Asia. But at this point, we're starting to be able to see like maybe some number of months from now, things reopening generally. And I'm curious at that point, like what will be the big project that you work on? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I have plans to go to Peru, you know, and lead retreats starting in June. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of hoping that these vaccines and all the work that everyone's doing to stay safe and wear masks and the, the worldwide numbers hopefully will be dropping. But, you know, my plan is to finish my manuscript and then go to Peru and I have seven retreats scheduled. So I will be leading this work in which I'm so excited <laughs> to be actually back doing it, you mm, know, yeah. it's, it's just so fulfilling for me and the people and to be able to gather again. And so to sing and meditate and pray and be on this amazing land that we use while we're in Peru, that we were on, that hosts us, it's just 
Yeah, so that's what I will be doing and writing and working on that and hopefully giving more talks about, you know, plant spirit medicine and the the benefits of using it in a ceremonial way. I think this is the piece that we missed in the 60s that was missing just by the nature, I think, of LSD is that there was no ceremony. You know, indigenous people for thousands of years have set ceremonies around how they use plants. They never would just take it and go to a party. You know, it's like you open it, you pray, there's a shaman, there's healers, it's hours of singing and song involved. And, you know, and I think that one of the things that is so beautiful from the contribution that we miss is the role of a sacred ceremony in a Mm -hmm. tradition, in a lineage. And that's what I miss about our, you know, being here is all the ceremony involved. <laughs> Life is but a ceremony, you know, and the prayers that, you know, hours of prayers and mantras and the elements and, and the medicine and the songs and and then the people and just missing our community. It's a very sweet groups of people who come down there and we experience something very powerful. So I, I miss that depth too you know, just being so real and raw, you know, there's not a lot you hold back after a few days. (laughs) At that point, it's all open for, it's all on the table, right? And your sense of needing to hide or defend is disabled in that environment. It can't function, you know, the masks drop very quickly, you know, and so it gets to this level of honesty that just, I think we all crave, you know, in our communities. So it's very healing for me. So I'll be back being a conductor. That's my underground railroad uh, there. (laughs) And I would say we're conducting. We're conducting the healing here. (laughs) So I'm very excited. And that will be in June. Well, it's fascinating work that you're doing, Spring. And obviously, the energy you bring to it is just really joyous. I'm curious if people want to like support your work in any way, how could they do that? Well, if they would like to know more about me, they could go to my website, which is springwasham.com. They can also get a copy of my book, A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. That book really came out of years of ceremonies and retreats, you know, having to sit through it all, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the love, the pain, you know, so... I love that book, and I think people really resonate. It's gotten very popular during the quarantine time. (laughs) But yeah, they can find me online, social media. I try to be very inspiring and have a YouTube channel that I post inspirational videos. So they can check me out always online. Fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us today, Spring. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. 
So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening.